You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. In Portugal, you can stare directly into the eyes of one of the country's most prolific serial killers. The only problem is he died over 170 years ago. So why has his head been kept in a jar all this time? This week, we journey to a place where people eat, sleep, play, go to the gym, go to school, all under one roof. And no, we're not talking about prison. We're headed to a place called Whittier, Alaska. As the famous comedian John Mulaney once said, I always thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it turned out to be. So whatever happened to Hollywood's obsession with trapping characters in quicksand? You know, the key to quicksand is you have to move slowly. No quick movement. I thought it was that I needed to find a lasso and throw it around a tree (laughs) and pull myself out. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, we don't dabble too much in true crime on this podcast. There's kind of a whole subset of podcasts that do just that. Uh, But I know one thing that just generally fascinates the both of us, but I think it's sort of the question most people have is how do people who commit vicious crimes and feel no remorse for them, how are their brains or are their brains operating differently from the average person's? Yeah, it's fascinating to think, and I think this is why serial killer documentaries are so popular on every single streaming service. It's interesting to us to study people who operate differently than us. And we've talked about brain health, kind of uh, this similar topic at least before. Episode 20, we talked about the brain of a guy named Phineas Gage. He was a rail worker in the mid-1800s who suffered a traumatic brain injury, and it totally changed his personality. And, And we still study that today to try to understand how our brains operate. Well, and if we find evidence that certain regions of the brain dealing with emotion or impulse control are different in someone who commits terrible crimes, well, then what does that say about accountability for those crimes from a legal standpoint? And Dave, this question, while it seems sort of new, it's really not. Serial killers are not new from a historical standpoint. And even in the past, people often wondered if there was a way to determine just like from a purely physical standpoint, if we could identify the source of these crimes in the human brain, how are killers made? You know, how much of the balance is what happens to someone early in their life? How much of it comes from the choices that they make? And then how much of it comes from the way that their brains are formed? Enter the case of a man named Diogo Alves. So Alves was born in 1810, and he ended up in Lisbon, Portugal, where he turned to a life of crime. And his play was the same pretty much every time in the early years of his murders. Uh, Alves would stand on a 200-foot-tall aqueduct in the evening, and then he would rob unsuspecting farmers commuting back from the city. He'd take all their goods, then he'd blindfold them, and then he'd push them from atop the aqueduct. And so Alves is believed to have repeated this same crime 70 times in only three years. So after the aqueduct was shut down because of all of this death that was happening around it, Alves began breaking and entering and committing more murders on top of that. So when Alves was finally caught, he confessed his crimes and was sentenced to death. 
But Dave, now at the time, science was beginning to realize the truth that our personality, ourselves as we know them, are contained within our brain. But there was still a really long way to go in understanding to what extent we could know what was contained within. The field of phrenology, which is the process of feeling the outside of the skull for bumps and ridges, was this emerging uh, pseudoscience. And phrenologists predicted that by studying the skull of someone and feeling their heads, they could essentially map out their personalities. Now, obviously, today, phrenology is rejected as pseudoscience. But at the time, the practice was gaining steam across Europe as legitimate. So enter the case of someone like Alves colliding with this emerging science. Scholars believe that by using phrenology to study the bumps and ridges of the brain of Alves, scientists could identify predispositions that turn someone into a cold-blooded killer. The execution of Alves sort of collided with this emerging field in a way that people began to believe that with the head, they could justify their theories that personality can be read on the skull. So Alves was executed, and his head was removed. But here's where it gets weird, Dave. The head was put into a jar and preserved in formaldehyde, but no one ever actually got around to studying it. So today, in 2022, the perfectly preserved head of Diogo Alves remains in the anatomical theater at the University of Lisbon, a part of the building not accessible to the public, but still waiting to be studied. And when I say preserved, Dave, I mean like preserved. Like everything is there. His eyes, his hair, his skin. It is wild. And the creepiness factor here is unbelievable because you're looking into the eyes of someone who died, first of all, like 170 years ago for one. But you're also looking at the face that for about 70 people was the last thing they ever saw. And in general, although Alves lived in a time where science wasn't necessarily caught up, This discussion of predisposition to violent crime is a very alive discussion now in realms of the law. The concept of how does a court system deal with the information that maybe someone who commits a violent crime has an abnormality in the frontal lobe, which is the region of the brain that deals with empathy and impulse control. Uh, I don't know if we're very close to figuring out what to do with that information. But Alves sort of represents at least one of the first documented times that this question was asked. And as far as what the plan is for the head of Alves, well, there doesn't seem to be a plan. Those that preserved his head are long dead, and no one in the modern world seems to be ready to open that jar. So, at least for a while, Alves may stay right where he is. Okay, so I've never seen this, and I have his name typed into the search bar. So you, you're I, never going to be the same. You okay. hate stuff like this. You right, hate gonna, like creepy I'm stuff. Hit enter on this. Here we go. Let's see. Oh, this is a soccer player. Uh, Diego Alves. Uh, it's Diogo. Alves. Oh, Diogo. Like, okay, yeah. That's, <laughs> this guy looks good, man. Okay, here we go. All right, Diogo Alves. Now, oh gosh, here we go. Okay, hit. Oh, ah! <laughs> I told you. <laughs> it's horrible. Jay, you and I are both from small towns, but you are from a really small town. Okay, the latest census data available puts your hometown at about 3,200 people, while mine is closer to 20,000. So tell me, did you enjoy growing up in a town where everyone seemingly knows everyone and there's no such thing as privacy? I personally loved uh, growing up in the town that I grew up in. Uh, It was tight, but it was in a good way. Like, I felt like I had 
really good relationships with people in the town. And like, I still have a lot of really solid connections there now. So, um, yeah, no, I, for me, it was a really positive experience. Well, it's definitely the kind of thing where you could make all the sports teams without even being that good. <laughs> I know I'm you're like about taking you little shots at me. You're like taking little shots at me. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> but Jay, we both now live in a bigger place. It would still be considered a small town by national standards, but our town and surrounding region does register as a top 75 television market. So there's at least a chance that you and I can keep our private life a tad private. But Jay, what if you grew up in a different small town? A small town that is at least in consideration, in my opinion, for the most interesting small town in the entire United States. A place where you don't just know everyone, you live with everyone too. Jay, today we head about 60 miles southeast of Anchorage, Alaska to explore the fascinating town of Whittier, Alaska. While Whittier was officially incorporated as a town in 1969, its roots go back to 1915, while its formation as an inhabited spot came about during World War II, when the U.S. Army constructed a military facility in Whittier, including a massive bomb shelter-type tower. More on that in a minute. But in World War II, the location served as the entrance for U.S. soldiers into the Alaskan region. But while the past of Whittier is important... It's the present we focus on today, and it's fascinating. Until the last few decades, the only way to access the town of Whittier was by boat or train. Obviously, weather dependent. That is, until about 20 years ago when the Alaskan government changed all of that by converting an old World War II rail tunnel to a tunnel that would allow for passage by motor vehicle. But this rail tunnel a single lane for a single car experience that is definitely not for the claustrophobic, occurs only once per hour in each direction. And it closes down at 10.30 p.m. every night. In fact, folks that fail to time the tunnel correctly are often seen sleeping in their cars outside of the tunnel. But Jay, here's the thing. Residents don't actually have to ever leave Whittier if they don't want to. Almost the entire city a population that clocked in at 272 people during the 2020 census lives in the same building. Remember that bomb shelter type building I referenced a few minutes ago? Yep, almost all of the 272 people live together in the 14-story old war shelter called the Begit Tower, or BTI for short. And this building not only houses the residents, it also is home to the town's hospital, school system, government offices, post office, and grocery store. The BTI, a building that is said to withstand on a yearly basis six months of rain, followed by six months of snow. A snow count, by the way, that is over a thousand times the national average at 22 feet per year, almost sticks out like a sore thumb in such a remote location. In fact, the BTI almost resembles a high-rise condo complex surrounded by, well... Nothing. In fact, many reports say that most residents of Whittier go weeks, months, or even years without ever leaving the BTI building. Occupations in Whittier are obviously limited, with most residents working in commercial fishing or railroad services for the government. Jay, and if you thought your hometown was full of a everyone-knows-everyone's-business type atmosphere, Whittier takes that to the next level. In Whittier, 
Rush hour means that the elevator is in use by another person. <laughs> so why? <laughs> why would anyone choose this life? Well, as with anything, people are complicated. Folks come to remote Alaska for tons of various reasons. Some hope to start over. Some hope to never be found. And some simply think that it's their best chance to create a sustainable, quiet, and maybe enjoyable life for once. Take one such resident, for example, Brenda Tolman. Known as the matriarch of the BTI building, both because of her longevity in Whittier and her dedication to keeping residents in line, Brenda came to town in the early 1980s. Leaving behind sunny California, she came with her twin boys and just a couple belongings. I was terrified when I first came out of that tunnel, Tolman told CNN. I thought there'd be a big gorilla standing there, because the town looks like it should be in a horror movie. Horror movie or not, and for whatever the reason is that brought folks to Whittier, the residents who call it home love this strange little town. In fact, Brenda Tolman refers to Whittier as God's little acre, the only place on earth she says she'd ever want to live. And perhaps, Jay, there's something to be learned from this handful of people in this strange little town about how to form healthy relationships with both others and ourselves. Residents like Tolman feel that the unique nature of this town not only forces the residents to treat each other well, but it forces them to treat themselves with kindness, too. You gotta be good with being by yourself, Tolman says. Here, you can get really lonely. It takes some work. So, Jay, you ready for a big move? Yeah, imagine, like, having a fight with somebody or something, and then all of a sudden you just gotta walk to the other side of the room. You know, there's no escaping anyone in the town ever. So, Dave, growing up, uh, I know you watched cartoons and uh, other shows. Did you ever kind of experience or remember experiencing seeing uh, quicksand in shows that you watched growing up? I feel like I watched a lot of shows where quicksand was very common. Or Do you agree? Yeah, and I feel like it wasn't just cartoons. I mean, I, I feel like it had to have been in maybe like every Indiana Jones movie, perhaps. Yeah, it was happening a lot, right? It's like the main character would get stuck in quicksand. It just seems like it was happening all the time. But now, you watch a lot of kids' shows now, because you have a kid, and I watch a lot of kids' shows. I I don't really see anyone getting caught in quicksand anymore. So quicksand used to be this very common staple of entertainment. For filmmakers, it was a pretty simple way to add some excitement to any storyline. Here's some sand, and it's thickened with water, and your main character's sinking, and they need to be saved before time runs out. Just like pure stakes-raising plot device and nothing more. And adventure gags in general are stamped into American entertainment from like a villain tying their victim to a railroad track to a villain using a time bomb that oftentimes has to be diffused with colored wires. Like these are pretty recognizable even in today's entertainment. But quicksand, as it were, has sort of disappeared from our shows and movies. Starting with a rise in the 1950s, quicksand hit a high point of being featured in 3% of all movies. So that's one in 35 in some form. And today that number is far, far below 1%. It was all over television as well. Quicksand showed up all through the 80s and into the 90s. It appeared six times in the Smurfs, three times in Transformers, and three times in G.I. Joe. As quicksand popped into our culture, it started to leave its fingerprints throughout our politics 
politics and policy as well. Vietnam was famously described as a quicksand war. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood in his iconic I Have a Dream speech. The idea of quicksand just sort of being out there in the unknown, in the jungles, in the unexplored areas of the world, seemed to collectively be ingrained into our consciousness. So then if quicksand was such a common staple of our language and our entertainment, where did it go? Well, for one, special effects got better. Suddenly in the 1980s, a puddle of mud to sink in wasn't as visually impressive as it used to be. We're scared of quicksand, but it's because we're scared of things like being buried alive or being suffocated, and quicksand is an easy way to tap into all that fear at once. In an article for Slate, Daniel Engberg gives a fascinating answer to this question that explores several theories relating to our cultural shifts surrounding quicksand. Some theories suggest that the decline of quicksand coincides with our decline in the unexplored areas of the earth actually being unexplored. During the 1980s and 90s, more than 10 million acres of forest were turned into buildings and lawns and pavement, and by 1990, a half of all Americans lived in the suburbs. And since quicksand is often depicted as being like off an unexplored jungle, perhaps the removal of the unexplored removes our appreciation for quicksand. But one of the more fascinating theories that Engber discusses in an article deals with the decline in sandboxes as a common toy for children into our modern era. In the 1970s, more than 800 sandboxes could be found in public playgrounds in New York City, but by 1995, there were only 44. And this trend was not unique to New York. By the 1930s, 58% of well-off families had a sandbox, but within 50 years, they had all but disappeared. I want to know how you can for sure know that there's only 44 sandboxes in New York. Come on. <laughs> well, these records, since, Very it, specific. since it's public, these records are actually a little bit more available than you'd think. It's like, hey, let's head over to Raymond's house. His kid's got a sandbox. <laughs> well, so all this begins, There's though, no kid's named Raymond. Raymond, I don't know. I Raymond? Yeah, of all names. You could have had <laughs> any name. You, that's what you the last time with? you heard of a kid named Raymond? <laughs> and so, Dave, all this begins in 1986 when a geologist named Mark Germain published a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine on an analysis of commercial sand he had performed in which he had determined that commercial sand contained tremolite, a substance similar to asbestos. The EPA declared for the first time that in the same year, asbestos can cause cancer, and the public feud on sandboxes in our public parks was on. Rising concerns began surfacing that sandboxes were holding all sorts of things people didn't want their kids finding, such as used needles or other drug paraphernalia, in addition to maybe giving them cancer. And although this whole thing probably wasn't that widespread, it only takes one news story taking off to associate sandboxes with a liability. So public spaces began removing them. And so the prime arena in which kids pretended that they were trapped in quicksand, which sort of helped sustain this culture, uh, cultural idea that we all agree on, that quicksand was dangerous, it had been taken away with the sandbox. Other theories suggest that we just simply know too much now. In fact, Dave, a quick Google search reveals that quicksand, as it is depicted in the movies, it just doesn't exist. Humans who are trapped in wild quicksand really can't sink past their armpits. 
In fact, the impossibility of being swallowed whole by quicksand has been standard in textbooks since the 1960s. The concept that we saw of quicksand is just a fictional representation of something that doesn't really exist in the form it's depicted in. Back in the heyday of quicksand entertainment, we all just accepted that somewhere out there in a far-off land, quicksand could swallow us, and it actually existed. But now we have all the world's information at our fingertips, and we can easily debunk it. So putting all this together... Although the use of quicksand as a story device has sort of devolved into this ironic gag more than a serious danger situation, we know entertainment trends, they tend to run in cycles. So, Dave, I'm sort of looking forward to a future where we can revitalize this idea that quicksand is a real threat. So a couple things. Number one, um, I googled uh, quicksand deaths per year. And uh, the questions that came up underneath that in the people also ask section, which you know I love, are uh, can quicksand suffocate you? Does quicksand exist? And uh, my favorite one, does quicksand feel good? (laughs) So there are some weird, weird people out there on the internet. Number two, I used to have a little front wheel drive truck when I was in high school. And where I grew up, it did snow pretty often in the winter. And so because it was front wheel drive and I had to go up and down hills, my dad bought some sand to put in the back of the truck to try to weigh down the back of the truck to balance out the front. And somebody stole the sand one day. And I've thought multiple times, what are they doing with that? Like, why do you steal sand? I can understand if you steal, like, a toolbox. Hey, that's what you get. Sand. That's what you get for living in a town of 20,000. That would have never happened in my town of 3,200 people. <laughs> I would have seen I would have seen Jim throwing sand in his driveway and I'd have been like, got him. It would have been so easy. <laughs> Nobody in this town has sand. Let's go to Raymond's house. People do die from quicksand, but usually it's like sand uh, underwater. I don't know. According to this, which is unsourced, it says has <laughs> yeah. anyone okay. has anyone actually died in quicksand? And the answer just says nope. <laughs> well, else. we got our nope. answer. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Crump. We'll see you next week.